session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Um, we're trying to get things situated here. We're at our new uh, studio for Radio Hamra, and uh, it's been a little bit of an adjustment. I'm first time in the studio. We also don't have air conditioning in the studio, so I'm trying to adjust to that as well, but hoping to uh, get things started for you all. Um, here in the new studio, a big thank you to so many people who have helped make this possible, especially uh, Ahdia, who has done a lot of work to allow for us to um, be here at the new studios, but everyone else as well. Thank you who's made this possible. Um, so I'll get right into the books of the week. I'm also on Instagram Live. You can see that it's a little bit warm in here. My cheeks are pretty red, but I guess that's part of the adjustment. We're going to work on getting air in the building as well. Um, so I'll start with the, the books of the week. So the book of the week for this week that I'll talk on next Monday's show is The Problems of Philosophy by Bertrand Russell. The Problems of Philosophy uh, by Bertrand Russell, and he is one of the um, most well-known philosophers and thinkers of the 20th century and so wanted to read one of his books and talk about it um, on the show um, so looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week the book of the week for this week is um, seven and a half lessons about the brain uh, if you're with me on instagram live you can see i'm having some technical difficulties as well getting the camera set up um, Let's see if that'll work for a while. Okay, so the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. And really, really loved this book. Highly recommend it to everyone to check it out. Fairly short book, about 160 pages, including the notes. Um, we are ha still having some issues with the camera here. But, um, and so uh, I really enjoyed this book and learned a lot about it. Lisa Feldman Barrett also wrote the book, How Emotions Are Made, um, which I read a few years ago for the show. Maybe you'll remember that. Um, and this book also continues on ideas about uh, neuroscience and what it can teach us about our brains, how they work. Also, some things that we might think about them that aren't so true um, as well, some misconceptions. So I'll get into some of those. So seven and a half lessons about the brain. Also a very clever title. I thought the book was very well written. The way she talks about the, the brain in different areas of research is very interesting. She's a great writer. Uh, so I highly recommend the book for all those reasons. And it's also new. So you're learning some of the newer research about the brain. Um, or new ideas or new things she has to say about that. So the first thing, you know, we're looking at the half lesson actually of the book is your brain is not for thinking, which is a great, um, you know, kind of a title. Because usually we think about our brains as something that we use to think, and we think that's the function of the brain. And sometimes this itself is an issue where when we think of the reason why something is there, we might not quite understand 
much about what made it come to be because we think we know as if there was some plan, but the way evolution works, it doesn't necessarily uh, have a plan in mind. Now, of course, some people who might believe in intelligent design or creationism might have a different idea on that, but from what we know about evolution, we can't assume the function of something just because we see that it makes sense in that way. So when we talk about your brain is not for thinking, she talks about the evolution of brains and how we ourselves have evolved from um, other animals who also have brains that might be similar to ours, and I'll get into that, but that when we think about brains for thinking, that's really not what they're for. She talks about how brains are for a concept called allostasis, which is essentially the ability to predict and budget the needs of the body before they arise. And that essentially that's what our brain is for, which was for me a very uh, interesting concept to think about, that the brain is not for thinking. Really, it's about keeping you using um, your fuel, whatever that might be, efficiently. So as she says, your brain continually invests your energy in the hopes of earning a good return, such as food, shelter, affection, or physical protection, so you can perform nature's most vital task, passing your genes to the next generation. So now, of course, we do think and feel with our brains, as she says, but it doesn't mean that that's what our brains were meant to do, or really what they do, and, and all other brains do that as well. So that's the first half lesson. Now, lesson number one is quite interesting because um, this goes back to some theories about the brain that we hear. So she says, lesson number one, you have one brain, not three. And so uh, you might think about um, when you hear three brains, maybe you've heard this theory of the triune brain idea, which essentially says we have a lizard brain, and that's the instinct instinctual brain. Then there's the mammalian brain, which is sometimes called the limbic system or the emotional brain. And then there's a neocortex, which is the human irrational brain. And sometimes people think that the way we um, evolved is that lizards have a certain brain and then um, mammals have a brain that's on top of that one. And then the neocortex that we humans have is only ours and is this third layer. But that's not really true. And this, as she puts it, is one of the most pervasive ideas. She says the triune brain idea is one of the most successful and widespread errors in all of science. And I thought that's quite interesting. I had read about this before, that the triune brain, this idea that there's this lizard brain, a limbic brain, a mammalian one, and then a human brain is not true. Uh, but I thought it was really good that she explains it again here, that when we think there are these three different brains and that the brains are so different between us and other animals, it really isn't true. And um, this goes back to some ideas, even when I talked about Carl Sagan's book a few weeks ago, this idea we have that we always try to make humans somehow so different from other creatures, other creation that we think we are special in some way. So our brain must be the most special brain there is. 
And of course, it is special in some ways as she talks about the combination of things that our brain can do is unique, but it doesn't mean that our brain is so special. So to begin with this idea that there's a lizard brain and on top of that, a mammalian brain and then this human brain, that's not true. And scientists have found that in some ways there's a common brain manufacturing plan that essentially all mammals have, even a lot of lizards have. Um, as she says, scientists have recently discovered that the brains of all mammals are built from a single manufacturing plan. And most likely the brains of reptiles and other vertebrates follow that same plan. So our brain in some ways is not as unique as we might think. So yet again, we have to take human beings off of this pedestal. As I talked about when I discussed Carl Sagan's book, we've thought before, um, you know, we were the center of the universe, that the sun went around the earth and the earth was the center of the universe. Then even when we lost that, we had to think, okay, well, the, um, the sun is the center of the universe. Even if we go around that, now we know that's not even true. So again, with our brains, we can see the same tendency to want to think that we are somehow um, special or unique in a way, but that is not necessarily the case that our brain is so unique. Even our cerebral cortex, the part of our brain that we think is so different or so big, it is big, but based on the size of our brain, it's not bigger than would be expected. So I thought that was interesting. This concept that um, this triune brain, again, that there's a lizard brain and this mammal brain and then a human brain is not really the case that that's how things evolved. Something for us all to be aware of. And sometimes we look at other animals, they have a more complex brain in certain ways than ours uh, and certain things that they can do that we can't do. Um, but that's something important to, to recognize. And it, it does seem to, I think one of the reasons why it's widespread and she discusses this is because we tend to think about things we go through. Like uh, you want to wake up to exercise, but you want to go back to sleep and you can feel like there's two different parts of your brain that are battling. And so thinking there's this, you know, in instinctual or mammalian brain that is there. Um, and that's the one making certain decisions or pushing you in some way, but then our rational brain can overcome that. Um, this seems to feel right in some ways based on what we experience, but it doesn't seem to actually be what our, what's going on in our brain. So that was very interesting. A big lesson, I think, for a lot of people. And she talks about how widespread this myth is about the, the three types of brains. And I mentioned Carl Sagan. She actually mentioned how Carl Sagan in one of his books, um, I don't know if it was called The Garden of Eden, the Dragons of Eden, a darker title. The Dragons of Eden talked about the, uh, the lizard brain and the limbic system or this three-part brain as well. So that does not seem to be true. Uh, the evidence does not support this lizard brain, this mammalian brain, and then a human brain that we think we have and that evolution kind of uh, just kept advancing in that way. Um, then she talks about in the lesson number two, how your brain is a network. And so this is really interesting talking about how the brain communicates. You maybe have heard things like um, neurons that are that wire together or fire together, wire together, meaning that uh, if you keep parts of the brain start activating together over time, they are more likely to then activate later on as well. Uh, so kind of we can think of it as a way of habit when it forms. Um, 
when you keep doing something, it becomes easier for that thing to happen again. But she talks about the brain as a network, and she actually makes the analogy, um, for example, of how our air travel system works. There are these hubs that she talks about, um, and every system can communicate in some ways with the other neurons or the other airports in, su in such a way. Um, but it's a network rather than everything fires at the same time. And there has to be some way of being interconnected in a way. So um, that part was interesting. She estimates that we have 128 billion neurons. Uh, and that's an estimate that some people give different estimates, which she talks about. But that's to her the best estimate that we have. And in some way, incredibly, these 128 billion neurons communicate with one another. An interesting point also, um, when we look at things like mental illness or different aspects of what we go through as human beings, sometimes people think, well, it's all about how big certain um, parts of the brain are that we look at those things, or just some uh, neurotransmitters and those things are important when you look at the structure of the brain and also things like neurotransmitters but what we are also finding that what might be more important than that is the functionality and the connectivity of the brain how does the brain communicate or different parts of the brain communicate with one another that might be even more important than just thinking about um, things like how many uh, how big is this part of the brain or how the brain parts are communicating so the brain is a network that was lesson number two which was quite interesting now lesson three to me was really a fascinating one about uh, essentially the developing brain so that one is titled little brains wire themselves to their world and so it talks about the developing brain and, and so many fascinating things about that and of course she gets into the nature versus nurture debate or really the way we should look at it is when we think of nature and nurture um, it, it's not really one or the other and there isn't one human nature as she talks about a few times in the book but that our brain is born with a certain type of potential or certain things and then based on the nurture their environment and that relationship uh, the brain develops and so she shares the sad story for example of these orphanages in Romania where there were unfortunately not enough uh, caregivers or really the way they raised the children was they had no attention other than getting just uh, food and sustenance and being changed and that was it and the way these children sadly developed demonstrated how important it is for us to interact with a baby as it's developing so you might think you know sometimes we think well all you need is you know food and water and that kind of sustenance and you're okay but when we talk about humans being social beings it's not just in a uh, playful type of way or it sounds good we really it's a social need that we have we develop with other people and without them we cannot um, develop and quite frankly so the way the brain develops is through interacting with um, one another with with the, the people that are around the parents so keeping that in mind sometimes you might think well I'm just holding my child or um, especially a baby a newborn um, my cousin Pega just had a baby and we're so happy to for baby Colette and so baby Colette is just uh, she was born what on the 17th so she's gonna turn two weeks old I think tomorrow um, 
And so it might seem like she's not doing much and she can't do much. In a lot of ways, she can in the ways that we think we interact with one another. But it doesn't mean interacting with her is not significant and won't have a big impact. And so just looking into her face, having the eye contact, um, gazing into her eyes, uh, talking to her, all those things are going to stimulate parts of her brain that actually will help it develop. Now, we're at a commercial break. But this book had so much that I did want to talk about it for more than one segment. So after the break, I'll continue the discussion on Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing the discussion on the book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Um, as I mentioned in the last segment, I was talking about uh, this title. The title of this lesson is "Little Brains Wire Themselves to the wor- Their World." And so it's ha- interesting to see how the baby brain or developing brain really develops and what it does and what it needs. And it needs to be taken care of, or the, the body needs to be taken care of and responded to in a caring, loving way, interacted with, socialized with, language. All those things are important. And uh, in the end of the book, she talked, or that section, she talks about um, how poverty adversely affects the brain and the developing brain, which is truly sad. And so she says um, she doesn't want to make it political. So she says politicians have dragged their feet for decades about lifting children out of poverty. So let's set the politics aside and frame the issue in simple financial terms. Childhood poverty is a colossal waste of human opportunity. Recent estimates suggest that it's far cheaper to eradicate poverty than to deal with its effects decades later. So um, what we see is that even from a financial standpoint, and it's kind of sad because really we need to usually prove that, especially to politicians, that financially it'll make sense, even when we're talking about taking care of our children. But even uh, new research is showing that it costs more to deal with the effects of childhood poverty uh, than to prevent it to begin with. And so it's not only more humane, it seems like it's more cost effective as well. And so, and I think that totally makes sense with anything. Um, I think Frederick Douglass's quote is something like, it's easier to build um, strong men than to, or strong children to break, repair broken men, something like that. But essentially the point is that Um, It's easier to keep something healthy from the beginning than to try to fix it later on. As a therapist, even what I'm often doing is helping people deal with childhood traumas, things that they received negatively or didn't get that they needed as they were developing. And I know that it can never be as good as what they needed to get. It can't fully replace it. So obviously I I will always try my best to help my clients, but I know that let's say the love they needed from their mother that they did not receive, we can try to work on that and repair that as best we can in therapy, but it will never be as good as if that individual had received that mother, uh, that love from their mother growing up. So that, that is the reality. So I was happy that she talked about that. And I think it's a, a important point to look at. And when we look at the effects of poverty, sometimes we think about other things, but we might not think about the developing brain. And sadly, if the brains don't develop the way that they deserve to develop or what they need, that of course will make it more likely that challenges might be faced later on as well. And so um, I thought that was very interesting. And I'm glad that she made this 
point and made it for a few pages and talks about it later on in the book again. That let's not uh, forget that when we don't take care of our children as they're growing up, the effects can last the rest of their life. Our brain starts to connect to this world based on what it experiences. And as I mentioned before, talking about allostasis, it's trying to predict what it needs to do or what it um, needs uh, to survive. And so if it sees it's living in a stressful world, that's going to affect how it lives as well. And that ties into some of the future lessons. Um, And that's actually lesson number four. Your brain predicts almost everything you do. A very interesting chapter, and I've read about this way of looking at the brain again so the brain isn't just about it's not about thinking it's more about trying to keep you uh, healthy allostasis and then also as much as right now even I'm looking at you or or looking at the camera here the phone here looking around I might think I'm taking in all this information and I'm just responding to that or I'm perceiving it all but as this title says your brain predicts almost in parentheses everything you do our brain is much more of a prediction machine than a just observing machine. So everything that's going on, your brain is constantly making predictions um, based on what it's experienced in the past, based on what it thinks is going on about what's happening. Uh, an example she shared, uh, or she shared something like this, if you've ever been waiting for someone, now lately we have not um been waiting for friends as often in public or been in crowded public places but before especially you could remember uh, I've had this happen to me so many times you're waiting for someone and you'll see their face when it's not there so you'll see someone coming and you'll think oh that oh, but that's not them especially if you're really excited or want to see them so the brain is predicting and it's amazing because if you've had this experience you could have sworn you saw the face you know it looks like them for a second right and then it's not them or you hear something based on what you think is going to happen that has a big impact so um, sometimes when we look at human perception or different aspects of being human you um, think about the bottom up meaning so you see something in the world let's say and then you take it in and then you have that uh, perception that sensation you, that sensation leaves, leads to perception but we see that it goes both ways that if I'm expecting to see something that also affects what I'm going to see. It's not just one way. Even another way we can think about this is if you've ever been hiking, let's say, in some area, and if someone tells you there's snakes in this area, or even if they don't, uh, you might see a stick on the ground and first think it's a snake. And this actually might be a good survival tactic to make sure you don't ever make the mistake of not seeing the snake. Um, But you are in that way, your brain is trying to predict what is going to be out there and it might be trying to protect you. And so even more, it wants to make sure it doesn't miss the snake. So this was a very interesting chapter talking about how the brain predicts. So it does things like it says, the last time I encountered a similar situation when my body was in a similar state, what did I do next? Um, yeah, and this even, we can take this further. I thought it was interesting looking at things like relationships. You know, we've talked about so many times on the show how we tend to uh, be attracted to people who might be like our parents, especially in negative ways, but we might be attracted to them. And another reason why is like this type of prediction. So if you see someone and they make you feel what you felt in childhood in some way, there's something familiar about that that might draw you to them. Right, That can make sense that if you remind me of how I felt in my home, I might want to uh, 
um, go towards you. Something feels good. Something feels familiar. Now, as we've seen, oftentimes we can be attracted to the wrong things or the wrong parts of um, the the person that that is you know in that that they might have in them. But we know that this can make sense. That the brain is trying to make predictions, and this is actually why a lot of times we talk about the unconscious. You might not remember why, but you're you can feel something. And I don't mean feel in some kind of mystical or, or magical way. Your body will remember how it feels to be in a certain situation or your body will have some recollection of that. And that, that will, will kind of um, affect how you think about that thing that's in front of you. And this also reminds me there's that, you know, quote people might say, you know, they say people won't remember what you said to them but they'll remember how you made them feel. And I think that's very true. When you think of a loved one, you might remember certain things that they said to you. Of course, it doesn't mean you don't remember none of those things. But more importantly, you remember how they made you feel. How did you feel to be around that person? And that's something for us to keep in mind as well. So that's lesson number four. Um, the, the next section was even, again, more about socializing. Your brain secretly works with other brains. And so this is interesting. She was talking about how we're, of course, all connected uh, in a way um, and how we help each other budget our, um, our, our energy more efficiently. So literally, we are affecting people's brains and bodies when we interact with them. If you make them feel better, more calm, you allow them to be in a more relaxed state. You allow their brain and their body to feel more comfortable. If you make them feel more stressed or uncomfortable, the opposite is going to happen. And so um, we might think again, you know, sometimes we, we feel something, but until we see the evidence, we think it's just something we feel or we talk about. But we see that there's literally research that's showing that when you interact with someone, you can have you have an impact whether you want to or not we're all impacting each other now i don't mean in some huge way necessarily but that we're constantly having impacts and especially with your loved ones people you're closer with um, you will have an even even bigger impact so i thought this was a very interesting type of uh, uh, idea to make sure we're aware of the effects we have and also you know this sense we sometimes think well physical pain is real emotional pain or mental pain is not real uh, first of all making that distinction is not so um, clear uh, because some, what is physical what is emotional those can be hard to determine or differentiate because uh, physical things have emotional sensations and where do we draw that line so um, but it also reminds us that there are real effects that are happening uh, one of the examples I use a lot of times on um, April 1st is April Fool's Day. And so you'll see people do pranks online and they'll say, oh, don't be upset. No one got hurt. And what they mean by no one got hurt is no one was physically injured. But if they were emotionally devastated or upset or hurt, we don't consider that real. And so this is, for me, one of the biggest issues I try to talk about on this show uh, or one of the aims I have is to try to bring an equality between physical pain and emotional pain. We try to differentiate them so much and think that there's physical pain and there's emotional or, uh, you know, you have medical issues and those are more important and real psychological issues. Psychological pain is not real. And that to me is not true. Again, they're so tied into one another, it's hard to differentiate, but I hope we can recognize that we can try to bring more 
equality to these things so that we recognize the significance of emotional pain. It's very real. And thankfully, with the advancements of neuroscience, we can see that pain more clearly. We can differentiate that. Um, a study that I really like, and I think in a way she uh, alludes to the study in, in this chapter, is when someone is in physical pain. So they did research with the, someone's brain being scanned, and the person could either be alone, and they saw how the brain reacted, or they could um, be holding a stranger's hand, or lastly, they were, it was females holding their husband's hand. And so what they saw was that the parts of the brain, and it's not always going to be one part, but they could see the brain's response when it was no one, they felt a certain amount of pain or the anticipation of pain. When they held the stranger's hand, it was a little bit less. And when they held the hand of their husband, it was even less. Now, it wasn't zero, but it became less. And so this is quite... Uh, interesting to me because this is a lot of what life is about. Most of the time we can't take away someone's pain. Something happens, we can't do anything about it. They lost their job, someone dies, they have a breakup, whatever it might be. Usually you can't do anything about the thing that caused the pain. The only thing we can do by being there for one another is to make it easier to bear the pain and quite literally, as these studies will show us, make the pain a little bit less easier to bear. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, the person's mom died. What am I going to do? You can't do anything about what happened. That's true. But it doesn't mean you can't do anything because by being there for them, you can actually minimize the impact of the pain they experience. And you've probably felt that yourself. Something bad happened. You might say, gosh, I wouldn't have gotten through all of this without the love or support of the people around me. And maybe you would have survived, but in some ways you're right. You wouldn't have gotten through it the same way without that love and support. So something to keep in mind that our brains are very powerful in affecting one another. Um, and she talks about even the power of words, which I think is interesting because that's another thing where we think it's not really real um, to, to say, you know, that words have power. You know, I think she, this power, paragraph is great. She says, the power of words over your biology can span great distances. Right now I can text the words I love you from the United States to my close friend in Belgium. And even though she cannot hear my voice or see my face, I will change her heart rate, her breathing and her metabolism. I mean, that's to me very interesting and amazing to think we can have that impact. So just by texting her friend, of course, we can talk about the differences in text versus verbal versus face to face. And there are going to be differences. But just by sending someone that love message in that text, you can actually affect their heart rate, their breathing and their metabolism. Quite interesting. So it's something to keep in mind that we can impact others and we always are whether you want to or not because we are social and our brains are wired together or work together in this way as the title of the lesson implies we're always affecting one another and so you can think about what's that what's the impact i want to have on people around me because it can be more positive or it can be negative and it's up to us what we do now um to me this book although it's a shorter book I would want to continue talking about it. So let's go to our last commercial break. And after the break, I'll continue the discussion on seven and a half lessons about the brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. We'll be right back. Welcome back. 
Um, so we're going to continue on the book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Uh, again, I was just talking on Instagram Live about how much I enjoyed this book. I really hope everyone will, will read it. And it's a short book that will teach you a lot about the brain, some things that you didn't know that you'll learn, some things you think you knew, and you'll find out maybe they weren't so true. Um, so I was talking in the last segment about your brain secretly works with other brains, which I believe is lesson five. Yes. Um, and at the end of the book, you know, she got into a discussion about words in some ways, or there's, that was a part of it about the freedom of speech. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will talk about, well, should you, does it matter what you say? Even like sometimes people will say, well, your feelings don't matter. I'm going to say my idea. Uh, but your feelings, if it makes you feel bad, makes you feel good, doesn't matter. And I've always disagreed with that, and she talks about that in this book. Not that you shouldn't share an idea if other people don't like it, because anytime you share an idea, if someone disagrees with an idea, we always don't want to hear it. So this is something we're seeing in uh, the political sphere in the United States right now, where things have become so polarized that people, one, when they're looking at their the information, the news they take in, they take in things that agree with what they already believe. And we've unfortunately made media so you know personalized to an extent that you can get news that fits exactly what you already want to f- believe and, and not have to see anything else. And so more and more you think you are so right and the other side is so wrong. She actually mentioned something like listening to... Um, news from sources that are opposite of yours or something like that. And I actually really uh, agree with that idea that it's important to expose yourself to news that actually is presenting the other side of things. Ideally, there'd be some very trustworthy um, neutral sources, but that's harder to come by. So you usually do have to diversify the people that uh, the types of um, uh, news outlets that you experience. So uh, unfortunately, you know, we we don't have uh, open discourse and partially because we don't want to hear the other side, unfortunately. So I'm not saying when I said words matter and that we should care about how they affect others, that you have to agree with everyone and can't share a different idea. Even progress scientifically and social sciences, whatever it might be, by definition, if you're making some kind of progress, you have to say something slightly different, at least slightly different than what's already believed to be true or accepted to be true. So uh, in no way do I mean you can't say something that people dislike definitely. But how you say it, I think, is very important. And you do have to be aware of the impact it can have on other people. And this also gets into um, the words we used to talk about other people. Now, some people will say, who cares about trans, um, uh, you know, rights or the words we use pronouns for example uh and this is something i've talked about on the show even did a book about pronouns uh, a while ago by mr baron i forgot his i think it was baron was his last name nonetheless but so um those things to me are very important because the words we use affect people just like she said she can text her friend i love you and have an impact on uh, her heart rate her metabolism you know how she's doing overall we have an impact by the words we use with one another and we should not take that lightly that we um, should think about what we're saying and how we say it so to me it is important how you say something and to be mindful of that. Not that you have to completely hold back to make sure you don't hurt the other person, but that you can express 
what you're thinking in a way that still can be kind and loving, even if you disagree. Unfortunately, this is a very sad uh, you know, development we have, especially in the United States, where people can't or have this very hard time conversing with people they disagree with. It gets very ugly very fast. Uh, don't believe me? Click on any political video or article and just look at the comments, and you likely will find a war in there somewhere where people are, you know, uh, telling each other how uneducated they are and stupid they are and dumb and how they believe this and that, and it's very, very ugly. So we have a hard time disagreeing with each other. You know, that whole adage, agree to disagree or to disagree respectfully, uh, has become really uh, something hard for us to do. And individually, we have to take responsibility for that. Even if the rhetoric or the ways that people are talking to one another is very disrespectful, you don't need to engage in that. You can respectfully disagree. And even before respectfully disagreeing, something I've not exactly talked about in this book so directly, but what I think is so important is recognizing you don't know everything that you think you know i'm using air quotes that you can't hear on the radio but people tend to think you know i think it's funny economists disagree about things in the economy but then people will post things on facebook or instagram or twitter as if they know for sure this is the way how could we do anything else or even with the pandemic I try to pay attention to the science and even sometimes scientists disagree, but paying attention to the science. And I know that I don't really know, you know, even when it comes to schools, I think it's a complex issues. Definitely when schools are closed, this has a negative impact on the kids. Absolutely. And I think that's important. Now, when schools are open, what impact does that have on um, spreading COVID? and putting teachers and other faculty and then, uh, you know, uh, people who live with the children at risk as well. And I don't know all the answers, but I think when people are, are posting online, they say like they know for sure. And usually what people are saying, let's say someone says, open the schools. Really how I read that, they might say, open the schools, this is stupid, whatever. And, and let's say maybe they're even right. But what I really hear is they're saying, I'm seeing the negative impact of closing the schools. And I think that's horrible. And that might even be true, but of course we have to balance that with, well, what happens when we open the schools and that impact? So people say their feelings really are what they are more impacted by, but as a truth. And so really we have to ask ourselves, do I really know the things I'm saying I know or the ways I'm saying them? Even as I do the show, of course, I have to be mindful of that. I try to share. Sometimes it's my opinions on things and different thoughts I have. Sometimes I share things that are more based on the science. But I do have to be aware of not saying things that I don't know. And I try to be aware of that. I'm sure I sometimes cross that line myself. But to be aware of that myself when I'm speaking. And so be think of that when you're posting something online. And you're going to so clearly say, this is the truth. Usually it's not the truth in the capital T thing that we know for sure it's something maybe you believe also be aware of the information you're taking in is likely very biased and so you're hearing things from a certain perspective that make it seem true if you hear 10 different quote-unquote experts say something you're like how could anyone think anything different but you don't know that people on the other side are hearing 10 experts say the other thing and so they're going to be convinced on the other side so i think recognizing that we don't know a lot of the things that we think we do is a big uh, step in being 
having the humility to then allow for us to have the conversation. Hey, what do you think we should do about the homeless population? If anyone tells you, I know, and it's so easy, I don't think they have any idea of what the situation really is, what the problem looks like. Uh, I think there's some aspects of it to me that are simple as we have to take care of them no matter what. That's my bias, even you can say. Um, but that to think I have an easy solution, I, I don't have an easy one. I think we should house everyone and make sure everyone's okay. And, and there's lots of other things that I won't get into that I know are also biases that I have. Um, but I can't say I know how to fix a problem like that. So anyone that comes to me, I know how to fix some big issue, usually tells me they either don't understand the issue or they want to get a lot of credit for something or they just want to sound very confident and like they know something, but usually it's not the case. Um, so that's just kind of like a tangent about those ideas. But coming back to the, the concept of words, I know it's a... Uh, you know, we think, oh, you're being a snowflake, even choose that word when people care about words and the ways you talk about people, but they really have uh, impacts on individuals. And I know that can make it sound like uh, we're saying, oh, everyone is so sensitive, but whether you like it or not, you get affected by words. If I change my tone right now and I won't, or even let's say use profanity against you, now it's going to affect you. Now, maybe you will be better at recovering from that, but it has an impact. And we do have to be aware that our words, our actions all have an impact. And so I think absolutely we want to be aware of the words that we use. Um, you know, there's an F word that's used for gay people that when I was a child, it was more acceptable to say than it is now. And that's a sign of progress. Is that the only sign of progress? Is that the only thing that matters? Of course not. But the fact that it's not as okay to say that word is a good thing because it shows that we're not allowing for negative things to be said about people as easily. And that does have an impact. First of all, when you say it has an impact. And also when you're allowed to say certain words about certain people, you are letting that group know that you are not really accepted or loved in this society because we can call you this word and no one cares. But when we say, hey, you know what, we're not going to say that word anymore. People might get to say, oh, it's about freedom of speech and... Um, you know, we're taking away people's freedom in that way. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're trying to make it so that more people feel comfortable in the society. Now, how you legalize that does have some legal uh, implications that I'm not getting into all of that. But being aware of the words that you use and recognizing that they are meaningful is very important. And so think about that before you say a, a negative word whether it's in a statement or to use a slur against someone in a way you're literally affecting their brain and their body when you say that and even verbal abuse um, can be so impactful and she talked about that when children uh, encounter persistent verbal abuse it, it affects them mentally and physically for the rest of their lives so these things you know words do matter um, then an, the next lesson is brains make more than one kind of mind. And so it's talking about how we tend to think that there's some, as I mentioned before, she talks about one human nature, but there isn't really one human nature and that everyone has to be the same way. Because as we talked about in the previous lesson about uh, how the developing brain interacts with its environment, different environments, different cultures, different societies are going to bring up different minds, are going to create different types of being that, that, that are important to look at. So that was an interesting uh, lesson looking at how we might think that there's one human nature, but there really isn't.
Uh, and then the last um, lesson I'm kind of going to rush because there's just a few minutes left. Our brains can create reality. And so that's related to the last one in the sense that, you know, we create a social reality. So, for example, you know, we can talk about money. Money is a uh, social construction. It doesn't necessarily have to have the value that it does. Or diamonds. When you say diamonds have value, it's something that has been socially created to have some type of value, but it doesn't have to have that that value. So we create a reality that is very much a social type of thing. And she even talks about race. So is skin color a thing? Yes. But the value we attach to skin color and race and racism and the way that it's impacting people's lives in different ways and the ways we treat different people, that is a social construction. It doesn't have to be that way. And so we have to remember that because as she talks about in this uh, chapter, a lot of things that we've created socially can feel so real because we, we feel we we think we're feeling them so deep, like race. You might think race is so real. I talked about was I think it was last week, Ruby Bridges book, um, This Is Your Time. And Ruby Bridges was the first African-American girl to go to an all-white school in New Orleans when she was six years old. And it's a heartbreaking story to see how people were so against it. It seemed to them it felt so wrong for a black child to go to school with white children and to have them, quote-unquote, mix. And it seems so significant. And I hope all of you listening would think um, that's ridiculous now, that that's obviously not only okay, but something we should encourage it any child anywhere should be able to go to school with any other child but it felt so real to them and race still feels real to us maybe in some different ways but the significance of it feels real and that's why people have these arguments where no there there must be something there and so we can lose sight of the fact that something has been socially constructed and I thought that was quite interesting so uh, our brains can create reality Um, we might think things are more real than they sometimes are are. And I thought that was fascinating. So I think the book, it does a great job of teaching you some things about the brain, things that you might think are true that are not true. It also is very, I think, you know, a humane view of looking at people and brains and how they affect us. And in that sense also has some practical ideas about how you treat one another, how you treat your children, how you interact with even yourself but interact with others. That to me was really, really fascinating. Uh, It's close to the end of the year, and I don't know if I can do top 10 list because I liked so many books this year that I read. I mean, I usually like almost all of them, but this one I I loved it. Maybe it was one of my favorite books of this year. Uh, That was Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Highly, highly recommend it. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. We are at the new studios here for Radio Hamra. It's going to be an adjustment process, but we're so happy and grateful to be able to broadcast to all of you out there. So thank you for listening and thank you for your support. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful night. (music) 